0: Turn in your Bibles, um, or if you don't have a Bible, you can pick up the Pew Bible and turn to Luke chapter 18. Um, the text that we're going to be working through this morning is found on page 1046 in the Pew Bible, and we'll read that together in just a minute. There's also an outline um, in the bulletin, if that's helpful for you to follow along. So while you're turning there... Um, There's a guy that I know um, who summed up, I ran across it um, a while ago, summed up an illustration that he had read in Kent Hughes' commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5-7. And so this is how the illustration went. Kent Hughes describes an event in the life of a distinguished judge of the high court in England. The church he attended had three mission churches under its care, on the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the missions, chur- missions, the three kind of church plants, basically, came to the big city church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, which were located in the slums of the city, um, in those churches were some outstanding cases of conversions, thieves, burglars, and so on. But all knelt side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former thief kneeling beside the judge. After his release, the thief had been converted and became a Christian worker. Yet as the judge and the former thief knelt together, neither seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the judge happened to walk out with the pastor and said, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor replied, Yes, but I didn't think that you did. The two walked along in silence for a few more moments when the judge declared, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement, yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. Then the judge asked, but to whom do you refer? The pastor responded, why to the conversion of that convict? But I was not referring to him, I was thinking of myself, explained the judge. Surprised, the pastor replied, you were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. Yes, the judge went on. It was natural for the burglar to respond to God's grace when he came out of jail. His life was nothing but a desperate history of crime, and when he saw the Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He understood how much he needed that help. But I I was taught from earliest infancy to be a gentleman that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, receive communion. I went to Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually ascended to judge. My friend, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm a greater miracle of His grace. If your life has been marked by success, In the main. Do you know what you need to be the thing, the reality that really marks your life? It's the gospel. It's justification by faith. If your life has been marked by failure in the main, do you know what you need to be the thing, the reality that really marks your life? The gospel. Justification by faith. Let's read uh, Luke 18 as Jesus draws our attention to that very issue in this well-known parable. Luke 18, 9 to 14, and then we'll pray briefly before we dive into our study. And Jesus also told this parable, okay? So he links it with the parable that we looked at last week, the parable um, of this woman, this persistent widow, So that parable was about prayer. This is also about prayer, but in a different way, different focus. So Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is not aloof and disinterested, but that you are in your kindness, in your mercy a God that reveals himself and stoops down not only to tiny creatures that are nothing in comparison to you, but even worse than that, rebellious creatures who have all thumbed our noses at you and tried to be our own little gods and goddesses in charge of our own little kingdoms. Lord, would you please show us How prideful we are. How spring-loaded we are to self-righteousness. And then, Lord, I pray that getting in touch with that reality, we would simultaneously see your amazing kindness that we've sung about, your amazing mercy that we've sung about, that is ultimately revealed in the person and the words and the work on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So would you please humble us because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, be brought down, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So Lord, would you humble us this morning that we might not be living in opposition to you and you to us, but rather that we would be people who are humble and contrite and tremble at your word and you look to those people to shine with your grace and truth and pour it out into their lives and lift them up. So Lord, please have your way. Spirit of God, come and convict us. Bring us to repentance. Show us our need for Jesus this morning, In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so as we begin and we head into this parable here, Jesus, Luke actually, paints the target. Okay, what is Jesus aiming at here? Luke tells us right up front, Luke paints the target. Jesus knows what his target is, and Luke paints it by telling it to us. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So if we if the shoe fits <laughs> if if this is ever us we really need to hear this message. And if you are quick to maybe write this one off that might be all the reason to really listen because this has something to say to all of us, especially if we don't think it does. So Jesus is is painting the target, what he's aiming at in this parable. Notice a few things. It says some people, don't just limit it to the Pharisees, even though the Pharisee is the example in the parable itself. Another thing to notice is that Jesus is addressing two things. There's two circles on this target, as it were. People that trust in themselves that they're righteous and people who view others with contempt. Contempt. Hey, now, those are two things, but they're two things that are related organically. They're linked. You can't separate them. Just like in our last parable last week, the prayerlessness and losing heart go together. So here, trusting in yourself and viewing others with contempt actually goes together. They're organically related. It's really helpful that Jesus showed us that. It's really helpful that he put those two things together and showed how they go together. You know why? Because we are typically very blind to our self-righteousness. If Jesus would have just said, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell this parable to those who trust in themselves that they're righteous. He goes on to give the example of the Pharisee. We would easily dismiss it that's not me. I thank God that's not me. I thank God that I'm not like one of those spiritual stooges, you know, the Pharisees. So obvious. Jesus is too loving to deal lightly with our inner Pharisee. So he actually gives us an additional diagnostic to help us see our own self-righteousness, okay? We need to see, folks, that we are spring-loaded to self-righteousness, So self-righteousness, if you could think about it this way, the organic relationship here, it's like the noxious root in the soil underground. And viewing others with contempt is actually the bitter fruit or the weed above ground. So if you see that bitter fruit above ground, you can be sure that that insidious root is lurking below. Okay, so do you ever treat people with contempt? Do you ever despise people and look down on them? Let me just draw it a little closer. Do you have a critical spirit? This is a really important diagnostic. This kind of looking down critical spirit is ubiquitous. It is everywhere Have you ever noticed your tendency to carry on an internal private hearing in the judicial sense with so many unsuspecting defendants? In fact, they don't have a chance to defend themselves because it's just going on in the courtroom of your mind. They are blissfully unaware of your arraignment. You've never sent them a court summons, and there are just so many open and shut cases so many people convicted by you the self-appointed prosecutor of your universe if you were god just think about how many people would be be behind bars with no appeals have you ever seen that tendency in your mind and heart anybody i think it's so much a part of us that so much a part of us that we may not even notice it how much it fills our minds we're kind of like native new york new york city people you know we don't look at the skyscrapers anymore or the advertising in Times Square. It's just everywhere. So you're blind to it. So why are we such incessant critics? Now, there's a good criticism. I'm not even going to nuance that. Of course, there is. Of course, we have to, you know, we know them by their fruit, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Critical spirit, the kind of thing that Jesus was after when he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Okay, have you ever asked yourself why we're so critical? The problem, if you haven't noticed, is not out there with all those easily, like all those easy targets, all those easy, critiquable people. The criticism problem is in us. It's in you. It's in me. The problem is our desire to take aim and take down. Why do we feel the need to do that? Why? Just give you some examples here. I just We can't let this thing go out at arm's length. The woman who's unhappy with her weight will be critical of both the women who are more overweight than her, good grief, someone please tell her she should not try to wear that, as well as the women who are thin and fit, must be nice to be your little size two self. The woman who religiously tends and tones her near perfect body will be critical of both the women who are just a little closer to perfect because you've got to find a flaw. I know, why do you need to find a flaw? and critical of those who are obese. Ugh, I can't imagine letting myself get like that. Why? Guys, it starts early. Think of the typical high school drama. Geeks are critical of the jocks. The jocks are critical of the geeks. The geeks graduate, get advanced degrees, end up making more money than the jocks. Then the jocks are critical and jealous of the geeks, and the geeks smugly criticize the blockheaded jocks and enjoy their superiority. On the basketball court, me, at Wheaton College. I criticized the guys who were too soft on the court. I went to public school. I'm not recommending this little smack talk thing. I'm just telling you what happened. Um, Confessing my sin. Oh, you must have gone to Christian school. Like, come on, can't you take it? Because I'm so tough. And then I'm playing against some football players that are throwing me around like a rag doll, and I'm like, what's your problem? This isn't football. Okay. The young criticize the old. The old criticize the young. The white collars criticize the blue collars. The blue collars criticize the white collars. The Dems criticize the Republicans. Republicans the Democrats. The singles criticize the married folk. Why can't they control their kids? Their lives revolve around their kids. And the married folk criticize the singles. They don't have a clue. Leaders criticize the followers. Followers criticize the leaders. Bullies criticize their prey, and the bullied criticize the bullies. It starts early. Go go to the elementary school recess lot. So many little kids cutting other little kids down to size so much insecurity, so much jockeying for position, we are so spring-loaded to self-righteousness and looking down with contempt on others. We are quick to identify the unrighteousness of others and so slow to identify it in ourselves. And self-righteousness, folks, is actually a betrayal of our own unrighteousness. We know we don't measure up we are existentially insecure about the fact. So we try to prop ourselves up and assure ourselves that we're not as bad as we feel. You know that whole junior high thing? Tear them down. to We haven't gotten past it. It's just a little more sophisticated for us adults. We need security. We need assurance. We need to know that we're not as bad as we know deep down that we are. So we compare and we judge. We especially need to judge those who appear to be succeeding, those who seem to be in control, those who seem to be keeping up the standards. This is actually a message full of good news and grace, so just hang in there, but this is good. We need to get in touch with reality. So we train our critical crosshairs on those who make us feel more insecure, more inferior, more pathetic than we already feel. I mean, you long to have it all together. You're failing miserably. Um, you're wearing sweats and no makeup to drop off your kids to school and who pops out of her car but that woman who always has it all together and she's in shape and always have every hair in place and a great wardrobe on and on and on. You stare at her you know, in all her flawless perfection. She calmly and you know, pulls her child out of this perfectly clean car and she's impeccably dressed and you yelled at your kids this morning and you know your car looks like a fast food bag and a Crayola kit collided at high speed inside your car. So you start your little mental trial. She only has one or two kids. If I only had, if I had the money for a ward. Or your life is a mess, but you were kind to your kids that morning. And she's perfectly put together. She's obviously exasperated, though, with this child. So you can secretly savor her exasperation. Small, smirkish little smile curls on your lips. When you see that exasperation, the harshness with her child, you've got one up on her. And you're glad for it. This is ubiquitous, okay? Wretched men and women we are. Who will free us from this slavery, this hateful slavery? Who's going to tear out that serpentine root that's just hungry to tear people down? Who's going to fill this Hungry emptiness. Who's going to do that? And you know what the crazy thing is? Every self-righteous impulse and self-justifying motion of our souls is a betrayal of the fact that grace is scandalous. We want to deserve God's praise and approval. We want to boast in our performance. We want a performance to boast in. We want to take some credit. We want the glory. But we Failure's like, what? Really? Okay, so Jesus has painted the target. Luke is showing us that's the target. Now he's going to take aim, and this is going to hurt. Okay, but this is loving pain, merciful pain. Jesus takes aim, verses 10 to 13. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24 says. Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. So who can, who can stand before the Lord? There's a Pharisee here and another is a tax collector. Luke paints a target. Now he's going to recount how Jesus took aim by telling this parable about two men. And by doing so, what Jesus does is he's firing Two times on the target. Okay, first he takes aim at self righteousness. Look at verses 11 to 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. In other translations, it says stood by himself. The question is, does that phrase modify stood or praying? I think it's actually, ESV is better. I think it's stood by himself because that's in comparison or contrast to the, to the publican, the tax collector who was standing far off. Okay? Anyway. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Okay, remember the target was those who trust in themselves that they're righteous and they treat others with contempt. You see how both of them are here? God, I thank you. Let me recount my performance, trusting in himself. And I thank you I'm not like this tax collector. You see how he's treating this other guy with contempt. Okay, I fast twice a week. In the law, fasting is required once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's it. Required. And he's not fasting just once a week. It's twice a week. This is impressive piety here. Okay, I pay tithes of all I get, which goes above and beyond the call. Because they needed to to tithe from everything that they earned or produced. But sometimes you purchase things in the market and you weren't required to tithe what was purchased at the market because the assumption was that the producer, the farmer, that he, he already tithed on that. Well, if you're really scrupulous, you might ask, what if the farmer I bought from didn't tithe this product? So, I'm gonna, so this guy's really devoted, right? Now. Can you humbly say, can we humbly say as Christians, thank you, God, that I am not what I was or what I could have become? Absolutely. Is fasting bad? No. Jesus assumes it's going to be part of our practice. Is tithing bad? No. Jesus assumes it'll be part of our practice. The problem is that this guy's more interested in recounting his performance than he is interested in receiving God's mercy. Do you notice he actually never asked for anything? Who needs God's mercy when it's clear that you're so much better than so many others? So much better than this world around you that's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay, there's actually irony here, and I'm not going to go back through Luke and, and show you, but Jesus actually already indicted the Pharisees on these three points. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers. He's already indicted them on those things. So missile number one is in the air. Jesus is going to fire a second time now first took aim at self-righteousness by means of the Pharisee in the temple. Now he's going to take aim at self-righteousness by means of a scandalous sinner. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Okay, now we don't have the visceral reaction to this guy that Jesus' hearers would have had. We know the story. So we actually reverse it. We put the black hat on the Pharisee and the white hat on the tax collector. But tax collectors were very unsavory fellows, okay? They were viewed as notorious sinners. They were sellouts. They were traitors. Rather than being on the Lord's side, they bowed to money. And as a result, they bowed to Caesar and his system of taxation that was full of graft and corruption, okay? They were traitors for the sake of money to line their pockets, so again, we can't. Oh, uh, we know, we know how this one ends. Black hat on the Pharisee, white hat on the tax collector. Okay, all the original hearers would have done the opposite. So this notorious sinner stands far off. He knows he's not worthy to draw near. He has no performance to recount. All he brings to the table is his sin. He's ashamed, he's guilty, he's broken. And Jesus actually puts this is a parable that Jesus tells, Jesus puts a very interesting word in his mouth. It's translated. Be merciful. God be merciful to me. There is a normal word for mercy in the New Testament, but that's not this word. This is a word that's used much less frequently in the New Testament, and it basically means to make atonement for me. It's used in Hebrews 2:17. Listen, or sometimes it's translated a propitiation. It's a big word. I'll explain it in just a second. Listen to Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters, us human beings, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, to make atonement for the sins of the people. In the noun form of that word, it refers to the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies of the temple. Okay? What was that all about? Follow me here. What was the temple? It was the dwelling place of God with man. It's the place that God met with his people. It was the footstool of his throne. It's referred to that way. The place where he ruled over his people. But there's a big problem. His people are sinful, right? You remember what was in the Holy of Holies? There's a few things in there. Main thing, the Ark of the Covenant, right? What was in the Ark of the Covenant? A few things. For our purposes, there's a couple of tablets in there. What was on the tablets? The Ten Commandments. Had they kept the law, his people? No. That's a problem with the holy God if you're going to meet with him. So that's why you've got a mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And on that mercy seat, blood, the blood of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement by the high priest once a year is sprinkled on that cover so that as God meets with his people, they're supposed to be holy like he's holy. They're supposed to keep his commands, and they haven't. That's a big problem. They need atonement. They need their sin taken away. God's wrath needs to be appeased. Justice needs to be served. So the sacrifice is substitutionary, day of atonement. The blood it covers. This is the mercy seat. This is the place where we can meet with God because of his mercy. You see the parallels? It's huge. This is why Jesus is actually called our mercy seat. The noun form is used in Romans 3, elsewhere, Jesus is our mercy seat. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, did you notice what the tax collector calls himself here? He doesn't say, have mercy on me, a sinner. He says, have mercy on me. Make atonement for me. I am under the wrath of God. I deserve it. I know I do. How in the world is that wrath going to be averted? How is justice going to be served? Have mercy. Make atonement for me. The sinner. So he makes no claim to righteousness. He's basically saying, I'm the worst sinner I know. I'm the chief of sinners. He's not looking around at anybody else because he knows that he has no claim before God. His focus is not horizontal in comparison. He didn't pick out some crony colleagues of his that were worse than him. He's not saying, at least I'm not totally corrupt. His focus is vertical, and he knows he's in trouble. His only hope is mercy. So Jesus paints the target. Luke paints the target that Jesus is aiming at. Then with the parable, Jesus fires two mercy missiles, one with the Pharisee, one with the tax collector. They're in the air, folks, and they're tracking. And then we get to verse 14, and those missiles blister the target direct hits. Look at verse 14. This is the conclusion of this parable. This is where he's going with this parable. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. Why? Because everyone who humbles himself will be, I'm sorry, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee treated the tax collector with contempt. I'm thankful that I'm not like this guy. Use that word this in kind of a you know, disdainful way. Jesus makes a play on that language and says, this guy, the sinful, broken tax collector who cried out for mercy, this guy went home justified. He is the righteous one, not the other one. Okay. We've seen lots of reversals in the book of Luke. And this is one more in that long line. Remember, the reversal of the rich man and Lazarus, chapter 16. And this is the second time that Luke records Jesus saying, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Other time is back at 1411. Okay? So the self-righteousness is targeted. It's blown up. Now what? Okay, the dust settles. Now what? Let's step back. We've got to ask ourselves, why was Jesus telling this parable? We know who he's aiming it at, but why is he telling this parable? Was he doing it to warn the humble against spiritual pride? Like to say to his disciples, you see those bad, self-righteous people out there? Make sure you don't get like that. Okay, certainly that has a, that's a secondary function of the text. But, but we don't have to guess as to why Jesus told the parable. Luke told us right up front. He's aiming at those who trust in themselves treat others with contempt. Why is he doing that? Is he doing it to just stick his finger in their chest? Does he do it to declare their condemnation and to seal it? No. This is like Luke 15. The end of the parable of the, the lost sons, the father goes out and appeals to the older son. This is the same thing that's going on. That older son deserved to be taken to the woodshed. And the Father is appealing to him. Same thing's happening here. It's amazing. Self-righteousness is ugly. We know it's ugly. At least we can see that when it happens out there. When we see it in someone else, we know it's ugly. We despise it. We want it to get torn down and blown up. But here, Jesus is taking aim at the spiritually proud, and this is a word for all of us, in order to be gracious. That's why he's telling it. God most certainly opposes the proud. He will certainly one one day tear down everyone who's arrogantly set themselves up in opposition to him. And yet he's not threatened by us little dust balls. Our kingdoms, our ambitions, our arrogance, those don't scare him as if. And so he's free to be gracious on the proud and the humble. So he's actually speaking a parable in order to give grace to the proud. God opposes the proud to give grace to the proud, to give grace to the newly humbled proud. That is really good news. You know what? By nature, we're all proud. (laughs) So if God only gave grace to the humble, guess what? That's bad news. None of us get grace. So this text should shout out, there is hope for us proud ones. There's grace for the proud. There's mercy for the proud. The proud who will repent of their pride and cry out for mercy. So he's speaking this gracious word to us in order to humble us, in order that he might give us more grace. The grace that he promises to the humble. (laughs) The humble like this tax collector. Okay, so he blows us up blows up our pride in order to raise us up from the wreckage. What kind of God is this? What kind of savior is this? Don't you love Jesus for this? That this is the way he is? So how do we then respond? How do we hear this and heed this word? How do we respond to it? Well, look look to Jesus and love. Look up to Jesus because we are recognizing that we are the sinners We beat our breasts. We we, we don't deserve anything but condemnation, so we need mercy. So we look up to Jesus, our only hope and our Savior, the only one who can make propitiation for our sins and who has on the cross for all who will trust in him. And then what happens on the horizontal level is that we look around. We never look down. We look around in love and compassion. That's the opposite of Self-righteousness vertically and contempt horizontally. So just as that self-righteous root bears the critical fruit horizontally, the opposite happens when we believe the gospel, when we realize that we are the sinner, we stop looking around it and down with the critical spirit and with contempt, we can actually look around because we know we're on level playing field. We're not superior. We are all spiritually bankrupt. So we look around and we love people. Those who have been forgiven much love much. When we cry out for mercy, when we receive the grace that God gives to the humble, the love of God and the forgiveness, the cleansing, the acceptance, the reconciliation of God that is based not on our performance but on Jesus' performance, what he did on the cross. It secures us at the core. We don't have anything to prove. We don't have to play the game and make sure we're one rung up on the ladder from whoever at the moment is making us feel insecure. Okay, so we're wretched, we're proud, we're insecure, we're spring-loaded into self-justification, comparison, pouring contempt on others, trying to prop up our little insecure selves. We're not righteous, we're painfully unrighteous, and we know it. And all that comparison is just, it's betraying us. We're unrighteous. We are not worthy. We have nothing to claim. We have no plea. But listen to Jesus here. We need to look up. We need to pour contempt not on others around us, but on all our pride, like the song. When I survey the wonder's cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain is the text that Steve read, Philippians 3. I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride, not contempt on all you inferior people. So Bethel family, let's repent of our self-justification projects, our Attempts to rely on our own performance. Jesus is seeking to free us from that slavery. Let's repent of our critical spirits of pouring contempt on those around us. He's the one telling us this parable to us proud ones because he wants to give us grace. He wants to give grace to the proud so that as the proud are humbled, he can give grace to the humble because he just gives more grace. and then when we get filled with that gospel grace we're going to look around and love other contemptible people just like us contemptible people we're no better we're not going to be ju- we're not going to judge and be critical we'll love and have compassion on them because we've got nothing to prove we're secure nothing can separate us from god's love it's not based on our performance god's chosen the foolish things in the eyes of the world to shame the wise weak things to shame the strong base things to shame anyway so that no one may boast in his presence. We only can boast in the Lord because he's our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So do we really think we're better? We do this. When you look down and you start to just criticize, why are you better if you're better? Why are you not in this trouble or that trouble or Where does the glory go for that? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, do not go beyond what is written so that not not one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I quoted E.J. Carnell a week or two ago. So, I'll give you another one. When Jesus judges our imperfection, he does it with such compassion that he releases us from the fear that we must pretend to be better than we are. He assures us that if we will be honest with God, God will be gracious with us. And the moment we enter into a gracious relationship with God, we not only fall heir to the promises of the gospel but we are also ready to accept our present duties in the kingdom of love. With pride dethroned, we are able to accept a much more modest concept of the self. We're delivered from the error of thinking that we must prove ourselves all the time. Kindness and truth become acceptable signs of status. Destructive anxiety cannot overwhelm us, for we are content to leave the work of salvation to God. How about Jonathan Edwards? Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. He goes on in another place to say this, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect Others. But a humble saint is most jealous of himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The spiritually proud person is apt to find fault with other saints and to be quick to notice their deficiencies. But the eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he's not apt to be busy with the other hearts. Pure Christian humility disposes a person to take notice of everything that is good in others and to make the most of it (laughs) and to diminish their failings, forbearing, understanding, being gracious, merciful, kind, but to give his eye chiefly on those things that are bad in himself. Is there anyone in this church that you view with contempt? Why? Do you need to repent of it now? This morning. This happens all the time. The, the culturally savvy Christian of the fundamentalist, the traditionalist toward the, the young hipster, <laughs> the nuancers of the black and white people, those who, are naive, naive, those who are dogmatic of those who are wishy-washy. Are they an embarrassment to you? Like, what's going on? We need to just deal with our sin. I, I, this, this was so good for me this week because the funny thing is I think I have taken pride in the fact that I'm pretty benefit of the doubtish. And understanding, So I need to get over that, for one. Don't take pride in anything. And then also to see, whoa, this is actually more present than I think, in my past and in the present. I could give many examples. Whether that's in the past, I was naively critical of a pastor who I love and I still have a relationship with. I think I was wanting him to be Jesus. And the fact that he wasn't clicking on all cylinders like amazing made him easy target. And thankfully, as I got older, I had some kids and realized that, boy, life's kind of complicated and sometimes you can't get to everything, I got backhanded with my attitude toward him in the past. Or present day. Like sometimes, mmm, that pastor, boy, things really seem to be happening there. Like, and I can think that well, he doesn't work as hard as I do, or he's not. I deserve more success. Whatever that is, like, this is petty. See, you say it, it sounds really petty. Speak yours. It's going to sound petty. So, thankfully, Jesus fires some missiles (laughs) at our big walls of pride and self-righteousness to blow them up, to free us, to give us grace. He's so good. Self-righteousness and contempt or Christ's righteousness? and security and compassion. So do you see how loving it is for Jesus to paint the self-righteousness target, to fire away, to blister the target? He is seeking to set us free. When I survey the wondrous cross, prince of glory, he died. (laughs) My richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Let's repent this morning. We need to repent. And guess what? God gives grace to repentant sinners. You want, you want a list of five things to do? No, you don't need that. You need, you need the grace on the other side of repentance and watch what it does. So I usually go back there and sometimes I have conversations that are this thick um, with a lot of people. I'm just going to sit here and if you'd like to pray or if any of the elders can come up, you need to repent. You need somebody to pray with you. As you pour contempt on your pride, I'm going to close with a little clip. Um, where is she? Shirley. You in here? Shirley Booker? There she is. She gave me this CD, this message by Jim simbla I've known Jim Simbla, You know, he's Pastor Brooklyn Tab um, in New York City. And she gave it to me a while ago. And I downloaded I put it in my iTunes, and I just forgot about it. And a week and a half ago or so on a Friday night, um, I was home doing the dishes, put it on. And I was just weeping through this thing. So convicted, so encouraged. And he closes with a little story. And I want to play the little story for us to just hear an illustration of what this looks like and what happens when we repent of our self-righteousness. Okay, So let's play that clip, Glenny, and then I will close us in prayer. And I will be here if anyone would like to pray. And definitely want you to meet Steve. He'll be standing out there to, to shake hands with you and get to know you and say hello.